Talk Energy with Yes Europe is a podcast created by Yes Europe to interview leaders in the energy industry by asking them the most voted questions within the young energy professionals community. Welcome to the fifth episode of Talk Energy with Yes Europe. And today we are very honored to have our very own co-founder of Yes Europe, Katya. And Katya went to MIT at 16 and she's a third generation nuclear energy uh, engineer. And she's also a 30 and 30 by Forbes in the energy category. And um, Katya, welcome. Could Thanks you give us an elevator pitch about yourself and what you are doing at the moment? Sure. Yeah, so uh, Ronnie set the stage already, third generation nuclear engineer, uh, but towards the end of MIT realized, interesting, there are a lot of other things that are critical to getting technology and nuclear energy more broadly off the ground, like economics and policy. Uh, so spent some time living abroad and working in a few different industries. Um, so ended up working in Russia, Switzerland, India, and then came back to the US in renewables, robotics, and education. Um, and it was really interesting to see you know, meet a lot of different companies and startups and researchers who were working on very similar things and were open to collaboration, but they did not know each other. And it was very hard for them to, to connect. That was sort of part of the impetus for founding Yes Europe. Um, it's been six years ago now. Uh, but also now with Centrally, which is my current startup, uh, we're figuring out a more data-driven, systematic way to help organizations and companies find each other for Jointly developing or deploying new technologies with see a special special focus on energy. That sounds very exciting. We're going to get back to Centrally, but let me kick off with a few questions about Yes Europe because we are Yes Europe. So, uh, what were the situation where you know why did you have to start a new organization? You know, there are many energy clubs in the campus or outside the campus. And what were the main reasons and drivers for you to start this? Yeah. Uh, it's funny, the conversation that pops into my mind was a conversation with one of my classmates at EPFL, Martin Adams. We were both in the master's program in energy management. We were just walking around campus after class one day getting lunch. And we were like, you know, we're learning about how Switzerland is transitioning away from nuclear and trying to figure out how to fill that new gap with renewables, natural gas, imports, whatever. Germany just went through that same transition and it would be so cool to talk with, you know, German students, but there was no way besides if we just like went on like LinkedIn or Facebook or like found the universities in Germany that were doing this stuff. Um, you know, a few months later, I was like, you know what, this, it would be really cool to bring together and like foster that ecosystem. I remember back from MIT, nuclear was super isolated and we didn't really talk with renewables or oil and gas folks. And that really frustrated me because it's not, you know, there's no one silver bullet. Uh, so pitch that to the energy BPT club at EPFL, which was, uh, I was co-president at the time. Um, and the team, you know, was super excited about the idea. So we decided to try out the conference and pulled it together in four months. Uh, that's how we got started. So it sounds like it's a platform for you to collect with um, like-minded people in other countries in Europe. Back then. But yeah. nowadays, it apparently has expanded much more than that. And yeah. um, just uh, another question regarding Yes Europe is, uh, uh, what were the like the biggest challenge when you were trying to start up this? Yeah, so after the, the first annual conference in Switzerland, we had 
40 students and professionals from seven different European countries, you know, pay their own way to come to Switzerland for the conference. And at the end, we were like, okay, like, guys, like, did you enjoy this? Do you want to continue this? And they're, you know, everyone was like, yeah, this is super cool. Uh, some people submitted their interests to like start this organization, but it was the two biggest challenges was like, okay, how do we structure something at, at the European level? Like that's such a big region. And then the second challenge was like, okay, how do we, how do we do this? That it's a self-sustaining organization. What do we do? Is it just events? Is that, you know, Alejandro, who's part of the founding team as well, um, also UPFL, he was, he was very interested in analytics because, you know, the young professionals perspective on energy in Europe, is just not covered in a lot of the market research studies. So we had found a few different things that we could do as an organization. Events you know, always were at the core for us. Things like, you know, events are, you know, one of the pillars, but there are so many new pillars now more recently, which is awesome to see. And then on the country piece, on the European, how do you set up like a, you know, continent level organization. You know, I really focused on setting up, making sure that the country level networks were strong, you know, and some countries have like the Netherlands has a very you know mature um, young professional and students ecosystem. There's a lot of very strong universities that have energy clubs that you can sort of connect and build that country level. Other places like Moldova barely had, they didn't even have like core university with an energy club. So every country had to be a little bit different, but the country structure was the way that we you know, approached um, making it much more manageable. Okay, that sounds uh, very informative. And I, I want to take our conversation now to what you are doing at the moment for Centrally. So you've worked in and lived in so many different uh, countries and industries. Uh, why specifically do you want to now connect organizations with Centrally? Yeah, so the, you know, pushing off of the background that I shared at the beginning, you know, there are a lot of different technologies that could invest my personal time in and my life in developing, like a new nuclear fission reactor or investing my time into fusion. I felt like that would progress, you know, our solutions in combating climate change a little bit, but I'm convinced that there's so much more potential and so much more impact I can make by helping you know, all of the folks who are working on all these different technologies move forward together much more quickly. Um, you know, if we can shave off 10% of the time that it takes to get some of these technologies off the ground, maybe that's sort of the biggest impact that you can make. It's not necessarily inventing this cool new technology, just more leveraging, you know, what we already have. So yeah, fundamentally, I feel like that's the biggest impact that I can make in, in my lifetime with my personal skill set and interests. I reckon many of our audience and probably are not very familiar with exactly how Centrally connects the organizations. Could you give us some you know, technical description of how this work? So say you're, you know, you're a large company and you know, we have different product and R&D teams working on anything from IoT to like building huge appliances to airplanes, um, you know, to develop new technologies. You, know, you can do part of it in-house, but you really need to partner with startups and other big companies and you know, manufacturing partners because you can't do it all in-house. Um, so how do you find those those companies. So what Centrally does is for that, you know, product and R&D team within a big company, you know, very similarly, 
the world for like a startup. We map out their immediate ecosystem. So who are their existing partners? Who are the partners of their partners, which is very low hanging fruit for new partnerships and gives them context as to where they are in the market. So we collect a bunch of various publicly available um, information from you know, press releases to grants to you know, patents, publications, if it's a more research uh, use case and build this graph of these connections. What we then do is they have certain queries of like, we need a partner that fills this like sensor gap in our appliance. Centrally, can you help us like find the, you know, the companies that are out there that can do this and help us evaluate them? So instead of giving us a list of 400 companies that match this, help us prioritize the top five ones that, for example, have worked with a customer of our scale, have maybe received grants over the last two years to advance this more cutting edge sensor. So we map those as well. And then over time, basically, this becomes a living living network that sits on the Centrally platform that their team and then over time, other teams within that larger company can access and, and learn from and seek out and manage those partnerships. Just to push this a little bit more, could you give us a, like a, a case that you have already done for, for your clients and uh, tell us how, how, how it worked? So work, working with an accelerator mass challenge um, slightly different case, but I think it's pretty, pretty nicely representative of it. You know, as a, a huge global accelerator or nonprofit, um, they get their sponsorship from you know corporate sponsors as well as from the Massachusetts state government through like grants. They need to bring in new corporates, and this is the case for a lot of accelerators um, and you know programs. There's hundreds of companies that they can target. Which ones should they go? You know, go look at. So what we're doing is we're helping go down that list of companies that they feel like could be a good match based on um, their interests and in, like the startups that Mass Challenge organizes the projects for. We look at those corporates' innovation activities. So what sort of innovation are they doing in house? Do they even have some some companies have like an internal accelerator? Some have like internal pitch competitions for their employees, which are telltale signs that okay, this company is really investing in innovation. We look at that company's like external innovation. Do they invest in startups? Do they engage with startups as customers? Do they sponsor other accelerators, other pitch competitions? Do they sponsor Mass Challenges competitors? And what we get from that is, you know, a quantitative score of this is, you know, this company's innovation propensity is very high and like a good fit and good prospect for you to reach out to them. Um, so it's a very similar example we can use for, um, you know, scouting like R and D. Uh, or development partners uh, for companies as well. I've I've got another question, which is about um, what are the major challenge when you are doing this? Is it a lack of data uh, from the public domain, or is it because of the lack of willingness from you know the clients? Because it's a new thing, right? So so what, what what's the biggest challenge? <laughs> I mean, there's there's dozens of challenges. I think the the top most ones. I mean, there's there's a lot of data available online. Um, it's certainly a challenge of like automating the the collection of that data. But that's that's a very solvable problem. Um, I think the the biggest challenge, and this is probably why this doesn't exist right now, is how do you make sense and really draw actionable insights from the data? So great, you know, Crunchbase PitchBook, fantastic. You know, Crunchbase, I, you know, I'm a premium user. There's a bunch of companies on there, but it's very hard for me to prioritize which company should I pursue as, for example, sales leads because it doesn't contextualize it for me. It doesn't have the more like intelligent piece of being able to 
recommend for me what I should care about and allow me to make, not take like 20 additional steps to actually get to that action. Uh, so that's, there's a little bit of technology there of, you know, leveraging like graph analytics and machine learning to derive some of those insights from, you know, the platform that we're building and also being very disciplined with working with the customers and understanding, okay, what you say, this is what you need. Let's take this down a few more levels of detail to really get at what you need and how can this be a sticky process in your like day-to-day workflow. So it's seamless for you and you can get to those actions very quickly. And then uh, where do you think like uh, centrally could be headed say in five years or even in 10 years? What kind of future are you, is in your mind? Yeah, this one's been a, this one's a, a tricky one. I've, I've been learning what that, what the short term, what the long term can be. You know, I've learned as an entrepreneur, you know, and as a CEO, you really need to figure out the business model initially. You know, long term, I'd love to help, you know, governments, industry associations, startups, you know, find those partners, even, you know, the startups that might be in a very, you know, in a country maybe that you can't afford like traditional like B2B SaaS prices for, for US startups. Um, short term, we're prioritizing the large corporates with a more enterprise platform solution to really build out the solution, the more advanced technology we need. And then eventually um, getting the product where there's different pieces of the product at different levels of payment and then making part of the data open source to basically unlock this partnership search and just like intelligence for a wide array of companies. Uh, I think a lot of the, I think there's an insane amount of money just in the analytics and the automation piece of it. Um, But my, my long-term vision is to make this whole like B2B uh, partnership matching process just easy for anyone really who needs to do it. So you're not stuck with like some really cool technology, but no partners or ability to deploy it. Um, And of course, energy is a preferred starting industry, but a lot of the more cool innovation is at the boundaries of energy and space, energy and materials, you know, smart cities. So getting to those in the next five, 10 years as well. And then I, I want to now shift our topic a little bit towards the nuclear. So since you, you know, uh, we mentioned in the beginning, a third uh, generation nuclear engineer, and also you studied uh, nuclear engineering at MIT, but what you're doing now is not exactly nuclear, right? So... Um, yeah, not quite. Why? Why is that? Um, yeah, as a as a kid, I was you know my parents were super focused on you know me learning math and physics and you know drawing atoms. It was you know when I went off to MIT, it was like the nuclear renaissance in the U.S. It was there was so much promise of like the industry just booming. Um, you know, come junior year, Fukushima happened, and you know just like other experiences at MIT you know, from, you know, engineering leadership to policy and management, I realized I really enjoyed the the people aspect and the community building and the international relations component. Nuclear and just engineering slash sciences in general is fantastic at making you a good problem solver. And nuclear in particular is great at teaching you how to think in systems and how to understand it's not just a materials challenge or mechanical engineering or physics, you know, reactor physics. It's the whole nuclear complex plus the economics piece plus the policy piece of creating an environment that does support nuclear energy. So I found that piece very fascinating and that's very translatable to what I'm working on now with the jigsaw puzzle of of companies. Um, But yeah, I... Yeah, I got, I got, I think nuclear is, nuclear is great, but it's, 
know, just like other energy sectors, it's fairly siloed, unfortunately. And I think there's limitations to what you can do if you stay in that siloed bubble. So I ventured out and with the hopes of like being able to lift nuclear and others uh, by connecting them. Then where do you think the future of energy, the nuclear energy would be then? Um, could you like explain both for fusion and fission? Yeah, I'll start with fission because uh, that's where my background is. Um, you know, huge nuclear reactors are very complicated projects. You know, they take years to develop, extraordinarily expensive. Um, you know, oftentimes more recently have just gone, you know, from five years to 10 years and, you know, in construction. And we just haven't as like a society and these companies haven't done it enough to really get scale. You know, I think China and France have done phenomenally in building enough reactors that finally like learned how to do it. But more recently over the last like 20, 30 years, we just haven't done it at scale. So I think the way around that is small modular reactors uh, because you can basically make it a very repeatable process and just make, you know, 10 small modular reactors and put them in one facility. Um, and so you can get the, you know, the economies of scale um, and really shorten the time cycles down. Yeah, in my view, that's, you know, it's not going to be some advanced like funky molten salt reactor. I mean, those are all cool, but I, I just, I don't see the policy um, or the scaling really happening for those, unfortunately. Um, yeah, on the fusion side, you know, it's been awesome to to watch the industry grow. And there's, you know, I remember at, at MIT, the fission folks and sort of the nuclear community always snickered. It was like, you know, it's always 30 years out. I think when we figure out fusion, it's going to be great. But I think it's very unrealistic to expect major progress or like a commercial, not experimental, not, you know, just like cute, like R&D fusion reactor that's going to happen over the next 10 years. I do. I think it is going to be a few more decades until we can really use, uh, you know, the energy from it for not at not just one place, but like multiple places around the world. So I'm certainly excited, but I'm not super hot on this being a silver bullet to fix all of our energy problems. There was a question from one of our um, audience um, regarding nuclear. So do you think nuclear is carbon neutral? And uh, how much of the environmental footprint does it carry? Yeah, it's, it's carbon neutral. It's extraordinarily green. I mean, if you look at the you know, emissions from you know, construction and the uranium and then just the emissions of actually running the plants, it's extraordinarily small, you know, compared to obviously the, you know, natural gas, coal, et cetera. Um, you know, and for renewables, you know, especially for solar panels, like procuring those materials, like we can't just sort of close our eyes to how, you know, costly and environmentally, um, you know, intensive that process can be. I don't know. Nuclear, unfortunately, gets this huge bad rep. And I think there's some very like emotional reasons why people are concerned. You know, after Chernobyl, Fukushima, Three Mile Island, you know, people are concerned about explosions. Like that that just doesn't happen. There's so many, so much functionality that, you know, that the nuclear industry now has to place in terms of safeguards to make sure that it, you know, it's fine. In terms of waste disposal, you know, the amount of waste that's produced is extraordinarily tiny. Um, you know, and can be stored very safely for many, many years. 
Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's extraordinarily efficient, a huge power source. Um, so I, I wish, I wish we had sort of more collegial uh, connections between nuclear and, and renewables because it's, it's on that same level of you know, being environmentally friendly. Um, just doesn't get that rub, unfortunately, which is fine. And so sort of the countries who are not pro-nuclear, I mean, that's fine. Other countries who are, you know, don't limit their ability to develop and deploy and build nuclear reactors. They'll take advantage of it. China sort of needs as much energy as they can get. So they're building all that they can, you know, trying to minimize pollution that they get from fossil fuels. That's a, a very clear yes. And lastly, we want to ask a few career-related questions. So what are the top three advice you would give to students or young professionals who want to probably start up your own business? Yeah, first off, you need to have a specific problem that you're solving and some validation from the target customers that like, yes, they have this problem and that they're willing to pay for this problem um, enough to make your business actually you know, financially viable. This like customer discovery piece, you know, can take a really long time. It can be very quick. It just really depends on how mature your understanding is of it. But you know, don't sort of start designing or building some new cool tech because you think it's cool without getting that validation. I definitely spent spun my wheels a lot essentially um, early on with not really getting confirmation from people as to how much they're willing to pay for it. I mean, great. Everyone's going to tell you, oh, yeah, 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 I have this problem. This is like such a big thing. But then when you're like, okay, how much would you be willing to pay for it? Oh, we don't really have the budget. Maybe not right now. Come back in a year. That does not validate the, you know, the problem or that there is actually a business here. So that's definitely the top, top most one. Second is team. You know, it's, it's very hard to develop anything just by yourself. You know, you're going to get you know, emotionally just drained. You're not going to be able to have all of the skills that you need from sales to product management to, um, you know, actually the technical components of it to like team growth. So building out a team of people where you sort of lean in and are drawn to work with them, um, it makes it a much more exciting process. It was very hard for me when I started out. I was, you know, I was alone when I was building out the team. It's a, it's a very lonely process if you go at it alone so build out that team yeah, i'm very excited to have you know the team that i have now it now it's it's nice to, to have other people who are working on your mission and then yeah the third thing you know probably a little bit uh a little bit weird advice but you know it's okay to fail you know you might try out an idea and you might realize you know what this is I'm not getting traction. I actually don't like this anymore. And it's okay to move on either to a different idea or just put it on the shelf for a little bit and then come back to it. I think there's a lot of stigma and you read all the news about entrepreneurs and it's like, oh, like this startup raised like $50 million, like blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, the success. Those are all great. But there are so many other entrepreneurs and so many other people that tried and failed. And those stories don't really get shown. Um, so I think that failure aspect, is not really a personal thing you tried it out you liked it or you didn't like it if it works great if it doesn't it's also okay you probably learned something keep moving and keep like you know adjusting uh, without really sort of sticking to it forever so let me sum it up quickly uh business business model validation a great team and be prepared to fail and i do want to ask a follow-up question about the team building um because 
I reckon not everyone will be the founder eventually, but what will, will be the、um, criteria、uh, that you have when you are looking for you know your founding team or the important roles that you have? Two things: one, proactiveness. This is something that I look for, regardless of you know if it's a startup or a bigger organization. You can't just sit and wait for people to tell you what to do in a startup. You need to be very proactive and define what needs to happen. This is especially critical for a founding team. And second thing is, you know, the ability to to work in uncertainty and make sense of it. It's not going to be clear who your customers are, what the products needs to look like, what are all the features, and how do you build all the functionality, what the business model is. You know, it's basically it's assembling. You open up a jigsaw puzzle box, you empty out the pieces. The ability to start putting them together and making sense of like that chaos is is critical. You know, people who are very comfortable with you know, just keeping on doing the same exact process. You know, larger companies are much more of a fit there,、uh, but early team members really need to be able to work in that uncertainty, feel comfortable in it, and be able to make you know tangible steps forward. Uh, in that massive uncertainty that an early stage startup is, so be proactive and comfortable with uncertainty, and、um, yes. that has taken us to the end of these interviews. Again, thank you very much. <laughs>